0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn
1: more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind.
0: Sunny skies on this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. And so the nation waits as several states are still counting ballots. And that includes Georgia. Now, neither President Donald Trump or Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden has secured that 270 path needed to win the presidency. Well, Georgia's top election official says he hopes to know the outcome of the presidential election in the state soon. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says counties should be finished counting around their 200,000 ballots by the end of the day.
3: Yeah, we want to make sure that we follow state law. We are always going to look at what is the state law, and that's why
0: Ryan Germany, our legal counsel, can answer any legal questions you have. But we, we want to make sure the law is very clear, and we follow the state law, and we don't believe that judges should legislate. And now was Secretary Rasenberger at an earlier afternoon press conference today down at the state capitol. The number of ballots yet to be counted includes 74,000 in Fulton County, Ooh, the process was delayed because of a water pipe burst on Tuesday. There are also more than five fifty thousand, excuse me. There are also more than fifty thousand left to count in DeKalb County. Now we'll have continuous live coverage of the results as they come in this hour, and analysis from strategists and election experts, plus a conversation with Congresswoman-elect Nakima Williams who was victorious last night. Now, it's also not clear who Georgia's next senators will be. As of right now, we know there will be a runoff between Senator Kelly Leffler, who will face Democrat Reverend Raphael Warnock in January. But the wait continues in the race between Republican incumbent David Perdue and his challenger, Democrat John Ossoff. And while these races are the big news, well, the other big news of the year continues. Of course, it's COVID-19. Now, the latest from the State Department of Public Health shows newly confirmed COVID-19 cases are up nearly 23 percent in the last two weeks. At the same time, these coronavirus related hospitalizations are also up 8 percent. So here's what we know so far. 364,589 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. Now, 31,893 have been hospitalized. And of those, we're looking at about 5,997 that were considered ICU admissions. And in total, Georgia has surpassed the 8,000 marks in deaths. 8,029 deaths have been recorded since March. We make it a priority to bring you these numbers every day. And as always, this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And as we mentioned, the race, a lot of races, including the race for president, is still yet to be decided. Several states, including Georgia, have not been called. And that's probably a good thing because everyone seems to be on social media saying they know who won. That's another story. Now, of course, people want to know what happened and what didn't happen. Well, let's bring in Trey Hood. He's a political science professor at the University of Georgia and director of the university's Survey Reach Center. And he joins me now. Professor Hood, good to talk to you.
2: Good to talk with you. Good afternoon. How late did you stay up? I went to bed at 1030. Oh, I Professor Hood, you turned in early. <laughs> self-imposed media blackout. Uh, I wasn't going to change the results. I got up this morning and started looking at things. So that's what I did.
0: I heard that. Well, let, look, there's so much to take away from last night, Professor Hood. Where, where do you begin? I know that, that, look, it's not a surprise that some results are still coming in. But what's been the major takeaway f- for you so far?
2: Well, uh, we're just just starting to disentangle things, and mm-hmm. it's going to take a while. Uh, you know, our latest polling with the AJC and in Georgia, our last poll showed things to be within the margin of error, which means technically it could go either way. So I wasn't going to be surprised if Trump won or if Biden won. Whatever happens, it's going to be very close in that race. It's going to be close in the Purdue Senate race. Um, of course, Senator Perdue has to get over the 50% mark or there'll be a runoff in that race, as we all know. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not going to say we, were, we we predicted the outcome because we didn't. We just said it was too close to call, which was as far as we could get. Um, and it was very close. Now, mm-hmm. outside of Georgia, uh, we're going to have to try to take a closer look at polling in certain places because... Polls in certain states like Pennsylvania were just not predicting what happened or what mm-hmm. seems to be happening. I know they're still counting votes there. We're still counting votes. Um, you know, either either Trump supporters were opting out of taking polls or they weren't being honest with the pollsters if they were taking the poll. Um, because there were more Trump votes than we thought there were going to be. Mm-hmm. Um
0: well, yeah, you know, Professor... Depp, my... It's
2: not going to be a blowout one way or the other, whatever happens.
0: Well, that so. was my next question for you, Professor, because we, uh, we seem to have this question all the time. Obviously, we had it in 2016, and that is the discrepancy between the results and those national polls. And as I said earlier on a national program, someone asked me what my takeaway is. and I said, look, pay no attention to the polls. Um, We know that they are to give somewhat of an indication. But um, your theory is that perhaps the Trump supporters or or Trump, you know, those who were going to vote for Trump just didn't participate or didn't want to be honest. Is that pretty much what we can take away from that?
2: Well, not not definitively. I'm Mm -hmm. just offering some hypotheses. I mean, something's not comporting, you know, in certain places. Um, Something's just not meshing and we're going to have to get in there. After the fact and try to figure this out, um, you know, we had some polling issues in certain states after the 2016 election, and we got in there and figured out, well, we didn't have enough. Uh, you know white uh, whites who had high school degrees or less so you know we bump up the weighting on that, but something else is going on with this and. Uh, we're going to have to just take our time and disentangle things.
0: I noticed last night on one of the network's coverage, and they they made reference to some specific demographic groups. And and they focused on, you know, whites without a college degree. And then they broke it down to, you know, whites with a college degree and, and, and Latinos. Someone listening may say, well, Professor, walk us through why that is so important.
2: Well, one of the reasons it's important in terms of polling is because we know that there's a bias in terms of who responds to polls. They tend to have a college degree or higher. So we always end up in the poll with not enough people that have a high school degree or less or not don't have a college degree, basically. Mm-hmm. They may have some college. And so we have to sort of compensate for that by waiting. Um, that's that's the problem with that. People are more likely to just respond to a poll if they have a college degree or higher. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's not a reflection of society mm-hmm. though, necessarily, mm-hmm. right? So we're trying to make predictions about, about a population from the poll and the poll doesn't look like the population. So we have to compensate for that through weighting.
0: Well, and also when you look at a particular demographic and then you want to dissect even further into the subgroups, for example, you know, there's been so much made. And I've had this conversation, too, on a national program, America Amplified, where we looked at the Latino vote. And you can't you can't put everyone in a bucket. And then when you break that down via nationalities where it's Cuban Americans or or Puerto Ricans or Hispanics, it's it didn't. It didn't, as you would say, it didn't compute. And a lot of people were saying, well, perhaps the Democrats may have taken for granted the Latino vote.
2: Well, I think the uh, the Latino vote or the Hispanic vote is certainly up, more up for grabs in certain racial categories. You know, a majority of whites in a lot of places vote Republican, a majority of blacks or African-Americans vote Democratic. So there's sort of a swing racial group in the middle there. And uh, I, that's something... I haven't had time to look into that, but I'm really interested interested in looking into the Hispanic vote in this particular election because at least early indications are that Trump did much better than anticipated with that group. I think you're even, absolutely even right. those who weren't Cuban Americans.
0: I so, think you're absolutely right. That has been what a lot of folks are saying. Um, Look, Democrats are saying, look, there's still time for Georgia to go blue. Republicans are, you know, they're much more skeptical here. What is your outlook? We've been, finally we got to a point where Georgia was considered a battleground state and because it is too close to call, but that doesn't mean that this is a definitive turning point for the Democrats in this state.
2: Um, Not yet. I will say we did, we did look like a battleground state. I can't tell you. I think I did more than 75 media interviews coming up to the election. So that was certainly different from previous election (laughs) cycles. So I now know how it lives to live in Florida. Uh, So, um, but yeah, we're not, uh, it's it's certainly possible for Democrats to win statewide office in Georgia, but it's not happened yet. Um, The Republicans have have had quite a run and that could end. Uh, But as you say, we're not quite, we haven't quite turned the page yet, so to speak.
0: And because we're not sure how this is all going to turn out, but we know that 2020 is one for the history books for so many reasons. Um, I asked you coming in to reflect on last night, but as we've been asking so many guests, uh, how do you reflect on this year in general with this being a a huge election season?
2: It's been a huge election and a crazy year just with the pandemic and all the rest. Uh, I mean, who would have thought? you know, even in January and February that we would have seen all the news events that we've seen this particular year. It's just been crazy. And of course, that's fed into the election and the economic issues that were related to the pandemic and the pandemic itself and racial unrest some places. It's just been one thing after another. Um, And so I really think most Americans are ready to turn the page on 2020 um, Uh, one way or the other. And you know the presidential election. I think, uh, as of now, I think Biden has a clearer path in the electoral college than Trump does. But you can you can bet that there's probably going to be some litigation going on that's probably going to delay things.
0: Well, why um, do you think Biden has a clearer path? What states are you looking at here?
2: Well, I mean, Trump always had to thread the needle. He did it in 2016, and he he has to do it again, and. Uh, it looks like Trump's lost Arizona, and if he can't replace that uh, with, say, Michigan, if he loses Michigan, if he can't replace it with Michigan, even if he wins Pennsylvania, and Georgia, and North Carolina, I just don't see how he's going to make up the difference. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I told people it was like pulling an inside straight in poker two two times in a row, and I, I don't know if it's going to if it's going to happen in twenty twenty for Trump. So.
0: Well, I'm always happy if I get three of a, of a kind. So. Right, well, uh, that's a great <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you, professors, we wrap up. You are going, when are you all going to have your next, you take your next survey or your next poll here?
2: Uh, after, we're going to try to start next week. Um, I've got to get geared up for that. I've been really concentrating on stuff around the election. And so now I've got to get geared back up for that. So hopefully, um, after the uh, after the election next week, we'll be back in the field with a poll in Georgia. And then hopefully, maybe in early December, I mean, we know there's going to be a runoff in at least one of the Senate elections. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we'll have a runoff poll for the Senate, too.
0: All right. You've been doing this for a long time, conducting research in American politics and policy at UGA since 1999. Trey Hood is a political science professor at UGA and director of university survey reach Search Center, Professor Hood. Thank you for taking time. I really appreciate a good conversation.
2: Thank you. Enjoyed talking with you today.
0: Always. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at GeorgiaBright.org. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. There's a call for calm and patience as the votes are still being counted here in Georgia, as well as some other states, including Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And as mentioned, Georgia's two Senate races are not decided as well. There's so much more to talk about. Joining me now to recap what we can. Abigail Colazzo, former Democratic campaign manager and director of strategic communications for many Democratic candidates. Also, our good friend, and sometimes we fuss, uh, Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks. And making his debut as an analyst, Corey Ruth, and also CEO of Emergence Global. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Right. to be here. Hope you all got some rest. Uh, Abigail, let me start with you. Any surprise the day after that some states are still counting?
4: No, you know, I, I think we knew that this was going to be a process. We saw across the country record turnout in the early vote. Anybody who says they are surprised that votes are still being counted and that we don't have uh, a a you know, a final victory yet, uh, hasn't been paying attention or doesn't want the votes to get counted. <laughs> so no, I don't think it's been a, a surprise to folks. That doesn't mean it hasn't been nerve wracking <laughs> uh, or that folks aren't anxious, but they are. It's the future of our democracy here. Um, so, you know, we, we know why folks are nervous, but, you know, we knew this is where we would be. Um, and we're encouraging folks to let local officials do their jobs
0: and do whatever we need
4: to do to ensure that every vote is counted
0: all right fred i kind of asked you this last night but any surprise about that states are still counting
3: i agree with what abigail said no surprise that this is going to be a uh, a multi-day process um there's no surprise that uh that there's several states that are still out i think a lot of us were surprised that the workers in fulton county decided to go home instead of uh instead of counting last night that was a little disappointing but that being said um this needs to be right, and I do expect there to be litigation, as the professor mentioned in the last segment, uh, that follows the uh, the outcome of the, the election today. Uh, but I also agree with the professor, I think that it looks like with Arizona going for Biden, that he will probably eke out an Electoral College win. But I think uh, President Trump has indicated already that he plans to contest every step along the way.
0: Corey Ruth, let me bring you to the conversation. Um, some key states are still counting here. And we need to, uh, we're gonna check Corey's uh, audio link in just a second. I'm gonna come back to you, Abigail. Coming in, and I just had a a conversation that you all heard with the professor. Uh, Coming into this, as we usually do, we we look to polls. Uh, You know, it's one thing when we have experts like you all on making projections, that's okay, because we can take that with a grain of salt. But we have these polls, and all these numbers are coming out. And again, as in 2016, you know, the they didn't reflect what the voter was going to do on election day. What do you make of that, Abigail?
4: Yeah. Look, I think that in general, much like um, a lot of our electoral systems, you know, our, our polling systems need need updating. We need to take a fresh look at our at the entire polling industry, you know. And and I think particularly with the rise of technology and social media, it's so easy now right? <laughs> to to just hit refresh on you know lots of polls and to think that there's a there's one formula for victory. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we know that that there isn't. It comes down to the environment, comes down to what folks are, are feeling on the ground and what their family's impact is. It comes down to, you know, the polls do not take into account voter suppression, right? <laughs> they don't take into account uh, environmental factors. But I think the positive things that we'll see, that, that we're seeing now is a dramatic improvement uh, in the conducting of the elections, the hard work uh, that has been put that was done by local officials you know the last few weeks and certainly here in Georgia um to ensure that we had a free and fair election and that every vote is going to be counted so we talk about the polls because they're they're just so easy to mm-hmm. make predictions on but so much more goes into it um, than that and it's you know, none of this is just a quick formula and we can just sort of press a button and know who's going to win. And, and that's why we have elections.
0: <laughs> and if it was that simple, we well. wouldn't be talking about this. Let me bring in Corey <laughs> right. Ruth. Corey, thanks for uh, checking in with us. I think we got your audio connected. Sure. Uh, what do you make of that right. uh, states are still counting and those key states,
1: Corey? Well, I, I just think that, you know, the the nation and particularly the left have done a great job of making uh, voting sexy. And, and, and so we're seeing, you know, general election level turnouts during midterms now. Right. And in, in, in Texas uh, last night, we had more votes come in early than all of 2016. And so um, the, the polling is going to have to adjust to this new level of voter voter enthusiasm uh, on mm-hmm. both sides. And so uh, I think for a few years, uh, it's it's going to be a while before we find what the new normal is from a polling perspective.
0: Well, let's talk about that. And, and I know you all have have been instrumental in that, Fred. I'm going to start with you, because as a strategist, you know, this is something that you talk to your candidates about, uh, Abigail, you as well. Corey, you've been a candidate. So you all look to these polls if you had to revamp or reimagine how these polls are going to be conducted how these
3: surveys where do you begin fred well you know as a strategist and a pollster this is something i think about quite a bit and i will say that it's really it's getting increasingly difficult to get us a good sample size and to make predictive um, uh, analysis based on on surveys because people are not answering phones right Mm -hmm. And, and it's also becoming increasingly expensive because you cannot auto dial uh cell phones so you have to you have to do it by by hand dial so that those are a couple of the issues that are challenging the industry but the, uh, the one thing that always makes a poll good or bad are really are your underlying assumptions mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. we know that the african-american was lower by a few percentage points than usual normally is it 30 31 percent? it was down to like 26 27 percent. so if you assumed a 30 31 percent uh normal performance then hey you know, Biden wins Georgia right now, he's up uh, as opposed to being down. So your assumptions are always a key part of it. And for me, uh, we always we always build in a few assumptions. So the historical average, but then what if there's an increase and what if there's a decrease and what do we have to do to, uh, to offset that? And that's something, and again, it's more expensive, it's more difficult, but that's what you're gonna have to do in this environment, now, I don't necessarily think that. I mean, yes, the industry needs to be revamped. You got to take in digital and things like that. But uh, overall, I think that at least what we've been seeing internally with uh, efforts that we've been involved with, whether I was conducting them or we hired people to do it, uh, they were pretty—they were pretty accurate. Now, again, uh, what you do for a, for a media release as a pollster versus what you do for your internal guidance can be two very different things, and that's another part of the problem. People who are doing it for publication are not doing the same rigor that you have when you're getting paid for it and your and your reputation depends on it.
0: Well, let's talk about sample size for a moment, which you, you brought up, because you would hope that, for example, the New York Times just released one of their surveys and they said they talked to about at least more than 15,000 people. Now, we don't know to the extent in terms of just how diverse that sample size was. We hope that it did include, you know, but as America is changing in terms of different demographics and we're, we have so many people here, so there's, there's no way to know, but I mean, it's supposed to give you a, some, some idea of an indication how a voter will tend to, to lean. I mean, right, Corey?
1: Well, I I just think we, we have to kind of move away from uh, polling, um, uh, sort of pure polling to more big data analysis for me. I think we have to, with the increased voter enthusiasm um, to Fred's point, make less assumptions. I think those threes and fours are people who don't vote, who usually did not vote as frequently that are now turning out to vote. I think those people are less uh, ideologically pure. So you can't count on necessarily those blacks to vote Democrat or those working class whites to vote this way or, mm-hmm. or the suburb- suburban women to vote another way. I also think there's there's changes happening with the parties and how they're targeting. I think the Democratic Party is uh, becoming more of a white party in terms of how they're targeting votes, and the Republican Party is becoming a broader Latino, black, and working class white male party, and so the parties are inverting which is interesting. And so I think um, how we just approach these, those underlying assumptions and, and just being pure data scientists, as opposed to just calling and asking someone a question is going to have to be the way forward.
0: Corey, I'm going to ask Abigail to respond to what you said, but I want to also give you an opportunity to also, you know, take that further. What do you mean that the Democrats are becoming increasingly more of a white party and, and the Republicans are becoming more Latino and black? Can you su- support that with some facts?
1: Yeah, and, and I'm speaking purely in terms of coalition building, right? So I'm saying you're seeing Democrats go after, like, white suburban women. Um, you're seeing uh, Republicans go after Hispanics and white working class men. You know, so, so some of the way that parties are approaching the messaging, the, the uh, groups that they're targeting is changing. And so that's going to be interesting in terms of the assumptions that are made in polling.
0: Abigail I don't sh-
1: think you see in large ways, you know, those things changing. But you can see, I've, I, I heard some analysis uh, on the news uh, today that, you know, Trump has increased, uh, he even increased his share of black women vote. So I think it's, it's just interesting to see these changes happening.
0: Hmm. Abigail, what do you make of what Corey said?
4: Uh, you know, I, th- I think one of the things that we need to address is what do we mean by the Democratic Party? And then this is a conversation that I'll tell you folks on our side of the aisle are going to be, I've are, are already started to have, right? Who is us? Who is we? Who is the Democratic Party? I think I, I can agree up to the point where I can say there has been an outsized focus from folks in power in certain democratic circles and the media, to be very honest with you on like persuading white voters, what's going on with the white working class? Right. But when you talk about some of the victories that we've had, and even you look at a place like Georgia where, you know, black women and people of color fueled Stacey Abrams campaign in 2018 to near victory, you look at the organizing happening, the vast majority of campaigns, which are not presidential campaigns, right? They're local elections. And that's being fueled by people of color. That's where sort of that work is happening. And I think there is a there is a conversation that is happening and needs to continue to happen within the Democratic Party about sort of who is in power, where are resources being invested, for the two, right, and where are we paying outsized attention? Um, you know, the reason that we have seen some successes we've had, particularly in twenty eighteen, you know, when we had overwhelming majorities in the, in the House of Representatives. Um, is is not because we're paying too much attention to white working class voters, right? It's the work being done on the ground by community organizations um, and by frankly, largely people of color, largely black women to do that work. So I think we just need to be careful about like the, the media focus on, you know, persuading white voters and where the money is going and, you know, the difference sort of between the grassroots and if you will, sort of the capital D democratic powerful class of people because they are not the same.
0: But this was a, it, it was highly touted that this year, the, the largest voting block, and some people don't like that term voting block, but that's what a lot of folks like me use, was from the L- Latino community. And then we also were hearing and seeing about a divide, you know, Fred. So if, if strategists, if you have a candidate who needs to to reach out to the Latino community. It's not just one whole community. You've got some subgroups in there that you've got to individualize in a sense for your candidate to get a message to.
3: Absolutely. You know, Rose, I started doing my consultancy, my campaign management in Florida. A state that is very nuanced, um, and working in North Florida and Central Florida to some extent, but mostly in North Florida. And so, Florida will teach you right right away that a Latino is not a Latino is not a Latino, right? So you have you have a Cuban South South, South Florida Cuban versus uh, I four corridor Puerto Rican voter versus mm-hmm. um, you know a North Florida slash South Georgia lower Alabama as we call it other kind of Latino, right? So. Uh, but what we do know is that and we saw this with uh president trump and the way he, where he played things in florida is that um hispanic voters tend to be more conservative um than, than black voters and so issues like reproductive health what we call it on the left um or abortion uh, in a state like florida plays is a very strong wedge issue particularly the further south you go in the state so uh but as someone who's been fortunate to work with uh, uh, now i are, um, in January be the only Latina in the Democratic caucus, Zuma Lopez. You know, she's Puerto Rican. And this is something that we we've talked a lot about and we reached out into Cab County, made an intentional effort uh to to include Latino voters. This is, this is just like we say black voters are not a monolith, mm-hmm. uh we can't the same thing with Latino voters or Latinx voters. One thing that I will say um to Corey's point, which I think is an interesting one, and it's kind of I don't see that Corey and Abigail are saying two different things. Mm-hmm. I think it's a when we talk about resource allocation, you know, all of the effort down the stretch for the Democratic Party in Georgia was in the metro area. So Senator Harris was here twice, uh, Vice President Biden was here, and then President Obama was here, and here being Colton County or Gwinnett County. They, and we talked about this last night, you're not gonna win Georgia until you put some of that effort along, IC, along 16, so in Macon Bibb, mm-hmm. over in Chatham, mm-hmm. when you're down to what, uh, 1, 1,500 votes in the DA race over there, or until South Georgia. You're putting way too much right now in the land. You can still do the diversity, but you've got to have some geographic diversity to it.
0: Well, let's look at, Corey, did you want to add anything?
1: No, I think, you know, Fred, you pulled it right out of my mind, just that I don't think me and Abigail were saying anything different. Uh, And I I like the way that she framed it. I I totally agree with that. And a brilliant point, Fred, Uh, you know, I think relying on the cab and Fulton to sort of, get you over the finish line. I think the Dems are, like, right at the, you know, two-yard line in terms of winning the state. And and I think now it's just diversifying here graphically that helps them do that.
3: You know, it's something I just want to say real quick, Rose. I know mm-hmm. you have a question. Mm-hmm. I pulled up the Secretary of State site so I was just really curious about something. As it stands right now, the percentage of the vote that Trump has is almost identical to Kemp in 20. In 2018, Brian Kemp had 50.22 percent of the vote, mm-hmm. and Trump right now, President Trump has 50.28 percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing percentage-wise um, almost the identical thing, which which is incremental improvement over 2014 for Democrats um, in 2016. But looking at this again, uh, the allocation of resources has got to be diversified because you're, you're squeezing every bit of vote you can or close to it that you're going to get out of the five county metro area. But you got to go other places if you're going to get that extra percentage and a half that you need to get over the hump and and make georgia and flip georgia
0: is it about resources or is it also too about messaging abigail because the democrats you all have been down this road before that your messages have fallen flat with many black americans your message falls flat with many in the latino community especially maybe cuban americans how do you all fix that you work with the democrats you're a democrat this is what you do how do you all fix this messaging
4: I'd say a couple things. First off, I want to uplift what Fred said earlier about, you know, monolithic communities, right? And, you know, particularly, you know, he was spot on with the with the Latinx community, um, that this is not one group of people. And you say, let's just take a bunch of our English ads and translate them into bad Spanish, you know, and hope that, that, yeah, that, yeah, that y'all, works. Yeah, you know, y'all, so y'all need to stop
0: doing that, too, because that looks real bad. Come on now, get some, <laughs> y'all know better than that.
4: Yeah, no, and it sounds terrible. You
0: know? Yeah, it's so it's, I think yeah. you we know,
4: we've, we we've definitely made some <laughs> so we, we've made some gains there. You know, uh, I think the Biden campaign um, put some put some effort into that, but but needs to do better, particularly in a place like Georgia, where the electorate is diversifying so rapidly. You know, look at a place like Gwinnett, you know, the cab, etc. So there, there's work to do there on the on the messaging with the different communities. And mm-hmm. same thing within the African-American community, too. Right. Um, so I think that's important. I do want to comment, though, sort of on the you know the idea about ge- geographic diversity and what's what's going on there. We definitely need to be shaving our margins better, right? Like we need to do more outreach. These are these are communities that have been particularly hard hit by a number of the environmental factors that have driven turnout this year, right? Look at something like the COVID nineteen crisis, even the even the climate crisis, right? We're mm-hmm. not you know we don't have natural disasters in Atlanta right, <laughs> the way you see in in Southwest Georgia, um, but this is also you know it's hard. And and in Georgia, we're starting to do the work. You know, um, you know, we got Van Johnson down in down in Savannah. So we've got a Democratic mayor of Savannah for the first time in a while, and and we're starting to invest resources there. But you know, when you look at the investment that the Biden campaign made in Georgia, it was reaching out to to black men via their their shop talk, right? I mean Biden came to to Warm Springs. But when did y'all do (laughs) that? Here's a question.
0: Here's a question. And my apologies for interrupting. When did y'all do that? Because it would it one could argue that the outreach didn't start until the polls started showing that Georgia was going to be too close to call. And for some folks, I can't speak for I don't speak for all black people just for me and my family. But some would argue, okay, yeah, y'all started reaching out once the polls might have indicated it was a toss up. So what's your response to that? Or is that just simply not true? Yeah,
4: no, look, it was it was later than I think a lot of us would have liked. There's, there's 100 million decisions that you're going to make about budgeting and investments, right? I think it is very appropriate for any democratic strategist right now to be wondering the hundreds of millions of dollars that we put into Florida, right, we're um, into Ohio. Are there new places we should be looking where that money can go further to to engage new voters, to engage, you know, our supporters in places like Georgia, and would that have made a bigger difference? And, and that's not just, I think, at the presidential level, but we are looking at a very tight Senate race for control of the Senate with mm-hmm. two races here in Georgia. And one has to wonder, all that money that we put into trying to knock off Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, right, like, can, can that money and should that money have been spent someplace else earlier? And I think that's a very fair question. for uh, state I'm going to ask uh, I'm
0: as going to ask is. I'm going to ask Congresswoman-elect Nakima Williams that in just a few moments because she'll be joining us as we wrap up real quickly. I want to get your thoughts on then what needs to what is the takeaway for both parties here? And, and Corey, I'll start with you, even though we don't know what the what the final result is, but what for you stands out?
1: well um, and i'm looking to fred for answers right because we went from uh, 10 years ago uh, 258,000 vote uh, gap between republicans and democrats and that went up to 300 in 2012 and then that came down to like 320 something and then down to 311 uh, in 26 26- i'm sorry 211 in 2016 right so trump beat hillary by 211,000 votes and then and two in a span of 2 years it dropped all the way to 54,000 votes and right now i think we're at 80,000 votes so i'm asking what is that precipitous drop due to i don't think it's um i don't necessarily think it's uh you know um you know migration patterns so i'm i'm trying to understand how the state went so drastically uh to purple over the course of Two years. So in, in, in other words, in short, is this a Trump phenomenon mm-hmm. um, whereby we're losing the sub- suburbs or is this really an indication that the state of Georgia is changing?
3: Good question, so, Fred. What do you say? Yeah. So my t- so my takeaway, and this is sort of answering uh, Corey's question. Number one, the Democratic bench is longer and deeper than it's been in a long time. When y'all said that la- in 2016 too, Fred. No, y'all say no, that every
0: four years. Because I had that conversation with y'all, and I'm not. Look, I'm look, just saying. Listen, y'all say that every I year. Know,
3: but listen, listen. Look at what happened last night, right? So we didn't get the 16 House seats, but in Cobb County. Cal- uh, Cobb County, you have a black chair, Democratic chair, you have a black chair for the first time in history. Same thing in Gwinnett County. And then you look at Henry County that flipped four years ago, my client Darius Patilla. when we won that DA race, it was very, very, very thin, right? And we were the tip of the spear. And now we will, now in, in Henry County, every county level position is there. And you're seeing the same in, in DeKalb County, Nancy Jester, the lone Republican, is now gone, right? And so what you're seeing now is to answer question, I think there are three things. Number one, we're winning at the local level. Mm-hmm. And that and that and in a year like this year where there wasn't as much enthusiasm for the top of the ticket local candidates were able to drive up turnout and you see that and you see and and attract and, and crossover vote you look at again craig owens over and in, in cobb and uh in the sheriff races that's very clear that they had they had crossover vote i think number two um there, there's a significant amount of resources to put in so we could talk about how this allocated but the biden campaign put a lot of resources then the number three uh the quality of candidates warnock is an amazing candidate they ran great ads and things like that so
0: all right and uh abigail you get the last word fred i love fussing with you buddy i
3: know i'm ready (laughs) those things are those
4: things were both true though right they the we did have longer and deeper benches every single year because we are closing that gap and 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 expanding our our opportunities here um look i think at the end of the day some i get who someone earlier mentioned the comparison now between the the vote gap and where Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams ended up. But you know we can't consider any kind of vote gap right now. We're looking at trajectory, and we are looking at the gap closing, right? We, every time we count, <laughs> every, every vote that we continue to count narrows that lead. Trump's lead is evaporating in Georgia as we count these remaining votes. And there are still hundreds of thousands of votes um, to, to be counted. And we are going to give our elected officials and our, our local uh, elections officials the time that they need to count every vote to make sure mm-hmm. every vote is counted properly so you know it's it's going to be very very close and at mm-hmm. the end of the day that that's sort of where we need to be looking at it's not where is it now where has it been but make sure every single vote is counted and i am very confident that if we give folks the space to do that and have faith in our elected officials that uh biden's going to carry georgia
0: we shall see abigail Colazzo former democratic campaign manager and director of strategic communications for so many democratic candidates also atlanta-based political strategist fred hicks and analyst Corey ruth also ceo of emergence global thank you both thank you all for taking the time i really appreciate it thank You stay tuned coming up a conversation with congresswoman elect nakima williams And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Yes, while the wait continues for the presidential race and some Georgia contests, well, one race that was pretty easy to call early on last night, and that was Georgia's 5th Congressional District. And we know that was represented for so many years by the late Democratic Congressman John Lewis. The 5th will now be represented by Democrat Nakima Williams after her sound victory over Republican Angela Stanton King. Now we call her Representative-elect Nakema or Congresswoman-elect Nakema Williams. And she joins me. Thank you for taking time and um, a victory for you.
5: Thank you so much, Rose.
0: So you heard coming into that, all that fussing folks did about...
5: <laughs> no, Rose, I was trying to unmute. I no,
0: was... we weren't going to... No, nah, it wasn't your segment. You weren't going to unmute. That <laughs> wasn't that segment. I was like, I have something to say. <laughs> well, let's start with uh, your, your victory there. Um, just can you reflect on what this means. And also you know, for me who say you're carrying the torch of the late congressman and civil rights giant, uh, John Lewis.
5: So I, I, I think I'm still processing the magnitude of the moment. Congressman Lewis was a very close personal friend. My husband worked for him for eight years. Mm-hmm. I got to know him better than most. And to know that I have this obligation to um, succeed him in Congress, and live up to his legacy. This is a very special district steeped in history, steeped in the civil rights movement. And I know that there's a lot of work left to be done. And I hope to be able to have the opportunity to continue to fulfill his legacy roles but also chart my own path in Congress.
0: Well, what does that look like? I mean, I know it's early, but what do you say chart your own path? What do you hope? I mean, we know that some Congress folks, you look at John Lewis, uh, and you look at Senator Johnny Isaacson, you look at Ted Kennedy. Uh, these are folks who have known to been able to work across the aisle. Um, you look at someone like Maxine Waters, who's also been known to, to want to compromise, if possible, with the two parties. Uh, is that part of, you think, your path?
5: So Rose, I'm willing to work with anyone, regardless of partisanship, if they believe in the true liberation of my people, and if they believe in our full humanity, because there are genuinely some people who don't even believe that me as a Black woman should be serving in the United States Congress. Mm-hmm. And so there are some people that I absolutely have no um, desire to work with, but I'm willing to work with anyone as we work to do the work to center those most marginalized in our communities.
0: And once again, we're seeing a, a, a little bit of, of increase and in push in terms of women uh, making strides in, in Congress. What do you make of that and how you fit into this now?
5: I mean, we bring our lived experiences to these positions, to the policymaking table. And I remember um, two days ago, I took a picture with Lucy Macbeth and Carolyn Bordeaux, and we had our elbows because we were trying to keep a little distance, but um three new democratic women of course we have another woman coming to congress with us but you know it's kind of like the little highlights picture one of these things is not like the other but well, we're
0: she's bringing- gone but you know you just mentioned you've been willing to work with people so you talk you're referring to marjorie taylor green
5: i am um but i mean and four women i mean regardless of what her views are this is a big moment for georgia having four women in our congressional delegation we haven't had this before
0: mm-hmm. ever Let's talk about where Georgia is now in terms of you heard some of our our strategists talk about, you know, Georgia could be key not only for the Senate, but also key to the White House. What do you make of that?
5: I mean, I've been watching glued to the numbers all morning, kind of overslept for an interview this morning as I was up all night. Um, So been watching just the numbers and um, as these results in Fulton and DeKalb continue to come in. It is these the votes that are coming in are increasingly in our favor. Rose, I'm also today when I got dressed, I was like, I could try to look a little like congressional and put on some real clothes, but I'm rocking my count every vote um, sweatshirt today because there are still votes out there. And it is so important that we get accurate results and not expedient results.
0: And you're your Rose, pearls. Uh, you got your pearls I, on.
5: I am wearing my pearl. I kind of wear those every day. I have, I could be in the middle of nowhere and I have on like some form of pearls. Um, But I just, I mean, listening to what we heard in the middle of the night rose from our president was an affront to our democracy. Like that is our country. is supposed to have a system in place where we have a peaceful transfer of power, where we, really take into account all votes being counted and then he cherry-picked which states should continue to count votes and which states should just go ahead and stop Mm -hmm. depending on where he was in the race.
0: Do you have concerns that if this does somehow get to litigation and look we've been down this road before and it gets to the nation's high court what concerns do you have?
5: serious concerns rose but what i am hopeful for is that as we continue to count these votes it is looking increasingly like georgia will live up to what i've been telling people as since my term as chair of the democratic party that we're a battleground state and we're going to turn georgia blue and we're on the cusp of that as these votes continue to come in so i'm hopeful that as votes come in that we will avoid that scenario
0: but is this how do you What about this election signals to you that this is just not a one-time event, that this truly is a defining moment for the state turning blue?
5: Well, it's the buildup of the process, Rose. This didn't happen overnight. When you look at the 2012 results to the 2016, like we have been building in Georgia. We've been organizing and doing the work on the ground. It took the rest of the country a little while to catch up and to be willing to make the investments. But I'm convinced that had the investments been made a long time ago that we were able to get this year, we would be like, we wouldn't be at these razor thin margins that we're at now. So the rest of the country has caught up and we'll, we're going to continue to invest here on the ground in Georgia because we see where larger investments were made, but like, but they're not as close as we are in flipping their states.
0: Now at this time, we know there will be certain a runoff between Republican Senator Kelly Leffler and Democrat Reverend Raphael Warnock looking at the race between David Perdue and John Ossoff. It's not a given if John Ossoff can pull just enough to pull Perdue under that threshold that could lead to a runoff. And this is the question I promised the analysts from the segment before that I'll ask if that is the case, whether it's one or, or both runoff races, what do the Democrats need to do to mobilize, engage their base to get folks back out to the polls? Cause Traditionally, that hasn't worked for the Democrats.
5: Rose, we are going to be the center of the political universe because the balance of the United States United States Senate will hinge on what happens in Georgia on January fifth. And so I have no doubt that we will have the resources necessary. Um, and starting today, we are already building on that process. We've already had a team in place, a runoff team in place building for January fifth. And so we are not waiting to have the structure and have the mechanisms in place to move forward. We're just waiting for the the numbers to be called in the off-off race so that we know if we have one candidate or two candidates. And I'm convinced that as the vote's come in we're likely going to have two runoffs so we will be the the center of the political universe so all of those people who are sick of the text messages the phone calls the mail get ready because it's coming rose it's coming back vote early and maybe you can get off the list
0: thank you for warning everybody (laughs) um let we started with you let's end with you i don't know when you were growing up if this was part of your path your vision i've always wanted to be a journalist i mean i also wanted to be on the muppet show but i was six but i've always wanted to be a journalist is this part of the little nakima growing up that you thought maybe one day i'm gonna be headed to congress
5: i i never imagined this life for me i was raised by my grandparents in rural alabama literally in a home with no indoor plumbing and no running water and so to say that this is something that is beyond my ancestors wildest dreams is very holds very true for me. I was, um, my cousins called me this morning. I come from a really big family, I'm the oldest grandchild, and they're like, Nikki, we're all coming to DC. And like, it's, it's, I grew up in Smith Station, Alabama, the big city, and so like, we're bringing country to the city for this wearing, <laughs> everybody's coming, Rose. It's gonna be a family affair,
0: <laughs> country to the city. Uh, as you reflect on 2020, and, and and listen, we have to acknowledge that, listen, this has been unconventional, and we've lost over 200,000 lives to this COVID-19. Uh, where should Congress begin when the session starts to address all of this again?
3: Yeah,
5: people, people ask me about my priorities in Congress, and Rose, number one is a national response to this pandemic. I suffered at Um, from COVID-19 for three weeks straight. Mm -hmm. And I literally at one point didn't know what side of the statistics I would come out on and didn't know if I was gonna live or die because it was brutal. And I'm fortunate to be a survivor, but so many people out there are not. And yet we still don't have a national response and it impacts so many different aspects of our life. My five-year-old son Carter is upstairs right now in virtual kindergarten because he can't go to school right now. And he tells me all the time, mommy, this isn't real school. I'm just doing this to get my prize at the end of the week. But we <laughs> got to get our kids back to school safely because our we know that it's, it's black and brown communities that are impacted the most when they don't have the supports that they need and then we know that black people are suffering at the hands of covid 19 health-wise and so it's just shined a spotlight on so many disparities in our communities so that is my number one priority we need to look at how do we get people the care that they need how do we get money in the hands of everyday people who are suffering because they've been out of work for so long and Georgia is failing them and getting them the unemployment that they need so there are so many issues that are impacted by getting a national response to this pandemic.
0: And also you look at your congressional district and an issue that we're going to start tackling again. We never really let it go. And that is housing affordable housing affordability. Absolutely. You of all people know in Atlanta struggles with this. That has to be a priority, I imagine, as Absolutely.
5: well. Absolutely. I mean, especially when people are out of work and we don't know when this this economy is going to rebound. So we've got to add. I mean, that's all a part of it, Rose. Hmm.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time. Democrat Nakima Williams, now we can call her Congresswoman-elect Nakima Williams after her victory last night, and she will represent Georgia's 5th Congressional District. Thank you so much, Congresswoman-elect Williams, for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
5: Thank you, Rose.
0: Take care now.
2: My name is Will and I live in Decatur. I would say it's like a university town, but with adults, more adults. I like that it's close to Atlanta, but it's also its own kind of town. Well, I like downtown Decatur, it's easier to walk around, it's less spread out. not really wild about the strip mall parts of like Lawrenceville Highway and North Druid Hills like the traffic's really bad and i don't know how many more mcdonalds we need
0: That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and Lashawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly and As always, we thank everyone from our WAB newsroom to our digital services people, everyone, to make this program happen. And, of course, last night. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at WABE.org slash Closer Look. And now available as a podcast wherever you go to get your podcasts. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Ro Scott.
2: Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at WABE.org or wherever you find your podcasts.